So just a reminder here, big changes coming for businesses this weekend. Federal government announcing yesterday that Sunday will mark the end of the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy and the end of the Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy. Those are two programs that businesses across the country have been relying on to help them get through this pandemic. Now, BC's business community, you know, admits to being a little worried about this, quite wary. I want to hear from you on this topic. If you're a business owner, operator, if in any way, shape or form you've depended on these business programs during the pandemic, how does this impact you? Email me, simi at cknw.com. As Global BC's Ted Chernecki tells us now, there are many businesses out there that are still a little wary about how this is all going to unfold. To hear it from the Deputy Prime Minister... We have now recovered 100% of the jobs lost in the pandemic. So where are they? Still pretty quiet where tourists once scurried about in the downtown core. Many of the office towers are far from full. Downtown restaurants are quiet too. Which is why Ottawa today said it is extending rent and wage subsidies to May but only for hard-hit tourism and hospitality. The government has been very good in listening to the business community and understanding where the, the deepest impacts of the pandemic have been felt. So we encourage the government to continue listening, to understand if there's businesses that don't qualify here and to be open to changes. For most everyone outside hospitality and tourism, both rent and wage subsidies end this weekend. There are new programs to replace them, but only for businesses that can prove they're still taking heavy losses. So think about that. You're a restaurant and you're down, um, you know, you're down 35 percent and you're not qualifying for any help right now. Um, and for other businesses, you can be down 45 percent and not qualify for any help, even though there's still government restrictions in place that are really affecting your ability to, to, to make sales. And then there's the question of defining what is and isn't a tourism or hospitality related business. The details, though, we haven't seen them yet. And so we're looking to the government to provide details about which businesses are going to be covered under these new subsidies and those that won't. And heaven forbid this pandemic suddenly becomes worse. It will be there and will be able to snap back into place immediately for workers. The Deputy Prime Minister promises that that includes any sudden new lockdowns where business finds it has to again close completely. Ted Chernacki, Global News. All right. So again, there's a lot of businesses out there who could potentially be impacted by this. I would love to hear from you on it. Email me, simi at cknw.com. If you've got concerns or if you think, no, it's about time, this has to happen, uh, let's hear from people on that. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. All right. Let's talk about something a little different this morning. How about flying cars? Yeah, not just something from the Jetsons. This is something that is actually under development by a pretty innovative aviation and aerospace company right here. Well, kind of very Canadian company, actually. CEO is Canadian. A lot of the executives are Canadian. The lead pilot is, yes, Canadian. We're going to learn all about it now uh, from Christia Collier, who is the producer of The New Reality. It's a Canadian television show. Christia joins us now. Good morning. Morning. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about this 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 flying car. I'm fascinated. It, it's it's really really cool. Um, it's uh, created by Marcus Lang, who is, as you said, a uh, Canadian. Uh, he's an inventor 
mechanical engineer. He came up with the idea about around 2009 um, when he was working on a different aviation project. And, you know, as you know, math is, uh, is a big thing in this field. And he came up with some calculations and realized it was possible and basically spent the last decade working on making it work. Uh, it uses eVTOL, which is uh, electric takeoff um, and landing. It does vertical takeoff and landing. Um, and it's, it's really quite remarkable. They're really hoping to get it out by the end of this year, um, if not next year. Okay, first of all, I want one. Um, and how, yeah, me too. <laughs> how, like, were you, how much of this were you able to see in person? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, it's still quite proprietary. It's a very competitive field, but um, they, you know, he let us come to his house um, in Warkworth, Ontario, um, where where he really masterminded the whole idea. And so we got to see some of the first prototypes. He also let us come to his headquarters in uh, Palo Alto. Um, we got to see some of the, you know, the fuselages, the wings, you know, all of which are sort of made of from carbon fiber, because as you can imagine, has to be quite light. Um, so we really got to sort of see under the hood, um, quote unquote, but, you know, there were certain things that we were limited to um, because, as I said, it is yeah. quite competitive and he wants to sort of be the front runner here. Well, they don't want you to be a super secret spy. Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. Although it would have been fun to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Not for them because they work so hard on this. It sounds like though, they've, they've got a lot of Canadian connections. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Marcus pretty much prides himself as like a pretty Canadian company. Um, and, and, and as you can imagine, you know, Silicon Valley is is the mecca for startups. But he really did want to keep it in the Canadian family, so to say. He went to the University of Toronto. He he got a lot of his staff. He, he looked at the University of Toronto for a lot of his staff. So Christina Menton, who is the director of operations, and uh, Eleanor Lee, who is like the plant manager and one of the main pilots, you know, sh- they are both uh, mechanical engineer graduates. And so when they were graduating, he reached out to them and, and he kept the whole thing secret. They had no idea what they were signing up for. They just, you know, he sort of, uh, you know, gave them, a, a, you know, an elevator pitch and they signed on signed up and moved to California to work with him. Okay, so how far away are they actually from producing this? Well, I mean, Marcus did say he was hoping to get the first ones out by the end of 2021. So, you know, we could maybe see some in November. Um, But I think there will be a lot more out next year um, in 2022. I know he told me his goal is to try to get about 240 out there. Um, Right now they're limited to rural areas. So you're not going to be skipping the morning commute uh, anytime soon. So it will be sort of (laughs) a rural area. Darn. I know that's, you know, being in Toronto, that's, that's my dream. Um, But uh, yeah, so I mean, I, ideally, they'll uh, be out by the end of the year, at least one or two, maybe more. I, it's hard to say he won't tell me how much. You know, it's a very secret, secret. secret type project, yeah. Okay, so where can we learn more about this? You, you're doing this on the new reality, is that right? Yes, it, it airs at 7 p.m. on uh, Saturday. I can't wait to see it. All right, thank you for that. Thank you. Have a great one. That's Christia Collar, who's producer of The New Reality. That's a um, like a Canadian current affairs reality show that airs on Global. Uh, you can see it. She said 7 o'clock. That she meant Eastern time. It's actually 4 o'clock Pacific that you can see it on Global BC. But check it out because we've been talking amongst ourselves here over the past week about pop, soda, 
you know, whatever you want to call it, things like Coca-Cola and and the addiction that people have to it. I know several people who that's all they drink all day long, whether it's Diet Coke or regular. I ran into somebody recently and I was talking to them and they had like three cans of Coke in their arm and that was going to last them through to lunch. And this was at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Shocking, but that some people do that. So it got us thinking about how, why? Uh, We know there's a lot of sugar in there, but what is it that addicts us to pop the same way it would be coffee or something like that? So we wanted to talk to somebody about this. Joining us is Ashley Gearhart, who's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and the Food and Addiction Science and Treatment Lab. Ashley, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Do people genuinely have an addiction to something like pop? We definitely see all the hallmark signs of addiction and how people relate to pop. They have these extreme cravings. They can't cut down even though they want to, even if they're having health consequences like diabetes. And when people do cut down, they show some classic signs of withdrawal, like irritability and agitation. So it definitely shows all the, the clear signs of addiction we see to other substances. Is that the caffeine in there or what is it that is addicting people? You know, it's really the combination. Sweet taste and sugar is really, really powerful. We come out of the womb loving sugar. It powerfully activates the reward centers of our brain. And when you look at pop, the the amount of sugar and how streamlined it is, it's like mainlining sugar into our bodies so rapidly, is such an effective reward that our brain really doesn't know what to do with it. And then when you combine it with caffeine, you really get this combination effect that is totally novel, really rewarding, and our brain just isn't prepared to handle it. But some people are drinking this stuff all day long, Ashley. That cannot be good for them. Uh, No, I mean, it's really a lot like what we saw with chain smoking a cigarette, you know, where somebody's waking up and it's just like they're just dosing from moment to moment to like keep that hit going all day long. You know, one of the things I think can be most telling about people who are really struggling with pop is how quickly in the day do you have your first pop? We saw that with cigarettes, the people that the moment they wake up, they light up. That really tells you that the addiction is pretty severe. If you're having pop with your breakfast, that's a pretty concerning marker. Oh, I I know people, though, Ashley, who have pop that early in the morning. And it's really honestly not surprising. In many ways, it's surprising that more of us aren't struggling because, again, the, the substance is so powerful. It really uses our brain against us. And there's these huge marketing campaigns that target us from the moment where like little kids that make us really think of pop as a special treat. It's combined with special memories of, you know, maybe going to a sporting oh, yeah, event with do. the family or pizza parties. And so it's, it's, you know, we're really battling against, you know, a very, very rich industry that's doing a really good job marketing and creating products that we're vulnerable to. Like I thought a few years back that, you know, that this was on the decline, that people knew this and they were going to, you know, they were realizing that, but it doesn't, it seems like during the pandemic, people went right back to drinking pop. Oh man, the pandemic really was hard for all of us. You know, I think um, the stress, and the desire to have some sort of pleasure and to feel things that maybe feel familiar and that we have positive associations with, you know, a lot of those things for a lot of us is food. And, you know, we saw the same thing with booze and other substances that that went a lot really up during the pandemic. And so now we're in this 
transition stage, hopefully, and it can be a really good time to reevaluate your health habits and what's important to you. Is there any safe amount, like one a week or just stay away from it completely? (sighs) You know, we don't, there's no identified safe amount. There's definitely no benefit at all. You know, your drinking pop doesn't do anything for you, not a single thing. (laughs) And so it's, always something that isn't great for the body you know for same thing with wine some people can have you know one a week and that's not a big deal for them and they can have it in moderation but there's a lot of people that find that even trying to have one a week is a battle that they repeatedly fail in which case for those folks it might be worth considering trying to go you know cold turkey and and let go of that pop you might need some actual support maybe even from a professional depending on how attached you are to that drink i think so that is so true ashley thank you my pleasure so happy to be um part of your show oh such a great chat that we had that's ashley gerhardt associate professor of psychology at the university of michigan Well, if there's one industry in particular that still is struggling in light of the pandemic, that would be the hospitality sector, the tourism industry. Well, they are expressing cautious optimism in the wake of the announcement this week from the provincial government that capacity limits for indoor events are going to be lifted. Uh, That's next week for some parts of the province, but in particular for Vancouver Coastal Health. But they still have questions about it. And then, of course, there's the issue of subsidies from the from the federal government coming to an end, but not for that particular sector. So we thought about, let's talk about all of this. Ingrid Jarrett joins us now, President and CEO of the BC Hotel Association. Ingrid, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Happy to be here. Well, first of all, let me get your take on what you heard from the federal government yesterday, this idea that the tourism and hospitality industry will continue to get supports. What do you think about that? Well, we're, we're incredibly pleased. We've been uh, actively working with our partners at the Hotel Association of Canada, and, and many people within our sector have been meeting with their MPs and really educating them on the impact of the restrictions still on travel. Even though the borders are open, you still uh, it's very confused messaging and the rapid test in addition to double vaccinations, etc., And we really have not seen the corporate nor government uh, travel resume that we enjoyed previously. So this uh, this is a big win for us. And just knowing that we can get from now until May of next year uh, with a subsidy to support those businesses that have revenue loss over 2019 by month, it's going to make an enormous difference. Was there any indication from the federal government, Ingrid, that something might change on that whole PCR test to return to Canada? Well, we're certainly actively in dialogue with our partners at the Hardest Hit uh, group, and that is being led by the Hotel Association of Canada and TIAC, uh, you know, our tourism partners. Uh, We have not had an indication when rapid testing may be removed, but we do know that the science indicates that the most important thing is to be double vaccinated. And so, you know, our, our perspective is remove the friction and then actually travel will once again, especially corporate group travel. If you have a group coming in and everybody needs to do a rapid test yeah. uh, as they're traveling, uh, it, it makes it very confusing. All right, so they're waiting to hear more about that. But what about this week? Provincially, we heard that indoor capacity limits will be lifted, particularly for Vancouver Coastal Health. Is, is that good for the industry? 
Oh, it's excellent. We're we're so pleased. Um, you know, this is Vancouver Island Coastal Health and a portion of Fraser Health. Um, and going back to the limits for the purpose-built uh, facilities like conference centers and, you know, hotels with meeting rooms and things like that, we're certainly seeing already that many of the maybe small meetings, uh, they're very interested in actually uh, raising those numbers. And uh, also, I think we'll see some capacity limits where now businesses will say, okay, now we can actually get together and have a multi-day conference in person. And there's certainly been several of those going on uh, over the last months, but now being able to get back to capacity is, it's so important for our recovery. Then we can rehire all of those skilled, trained people that work within, you know, AV, technology, banquets, catering, all of our culinary teams, you know, without meetings, uh, groups and events and conferences, all of those people Mm-hmm. will remain laid off. You know, you're, Ingrid, from what it sounds like there, from what you're saying, is the conferences, that, that really is the lifeblood of the industry. Well, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I would say in urban centres where we are known for group, corporate and meeting travel, the industry has built around the demand uh, historically. So to not have that demand or to have demand restricted by numbers of, of people, it means that all of those buildings uh, are actually remaining underutilized. And the ripple effect for all the supporting industries, whether that's transportation or attractions, restaurants, I mean, there's just sporting events, all of those kind of things are actually fed also by that demand that comes in for uh, group travel. So certainly, uh, I think leisure travel, we're seeing around the province that that is recovering, but again, only domestically. And our international travelers spend three to four times what a domestic traveler does, which is why that border reopening is so important. Right. So you talked about, you know, being able to bring people back. Are those people available, though? Like, what about the whole job situation? I mean, I'm sure hotels would like to reopen and have the rooms all open, but is the staff there? Well, we certainly are seeing that, you know, we went into the pandemic with a workforce shortage, and certainly the pandemic has amplified that and made it worse. Uh, Our hope is, because many of these people are on temporary layoffs, that they will, in fact, come back to work. And um, if we, well, I can tell you, we're working very hard with our partners at GoToHR and TIABC on a workforce strategy, and we're meeting with government around different avenues to make sure that those uh, the workforce that we would have had, many of which are foreign workers, uh, that they can help us with access to make sure that, that that opens up and supports the industry recovery as well. Right. So it sounds like, that, Ingrid, then for the industry, for the tourism, for the hospitality industry, it really is still about needing some support well into 2022. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're, you know, we're in, going into November between November and April, historically, is our slowest period. All of our costs remain the same, you know, whether that's property tax or energy costs or physical plant costs of running. And uh, it's really important provincially as well. And we are engaged with our tourism sector partners with the provincial government and uh, to to uh, detail some of those uh, opportunities for support and we're, we're very, very hopeful. Right. What about ski season? Does that provide any kind of a boon to hotels? 
Um, it does. Uh, well, it does in certain areas. Many uh, ski resorts actually have accommodation at the resort. And we, let's think about Whistler. The, the biggest challenge is going to be workforce. I think not only at Whistler, but also at the ski resorts uh, in BC. And that's because so many people would have come in in a working holiday visa or they would have been fast-tracked visas for uh, specific expertise like ski instructors or, you know, that sort of thing. So I do know that they have, uh, they're actively hiring. They would have historically hired overseas, especially in Australia and New Zealand, uh, because they're very keen skiers and love to come and see and work for the winter. And uh, we have not seen those visas reopen. So it's, it's a challenge right now for the ski sector. All right, we'll keep checking back in with you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for yours. Right now, though, let's check in with Vanny Sartini, acting head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Good morning, Vanny. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I would imagine you're doing pretty well. You guys had a great game last game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a fantastic game. It was very beautiful. Yes, yeah. How, how long do you allow yourself to enjoy that before you think, okay, no, no, it's over. Now on to the next one. Well, of course, Wednesday, and uh, as you can tell from my voice, I, I haven't recovered my voice yet oh, from the no. game. <laughs> <laughs> Is that from the yelling on the sidelines? <laughs> yes, yes, it's from the yelling on the sideline. And um, and uh, yes, yesterday we, we had to start actually immediately to refocus and to... <clears throat> sorry again. <clears throat> and to play and to And to work for, uh, for, the, for the next game, but... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, we, we had a little celebration, but now focus again on San Jose for tomorrow. So were you yelling because you were frustrated at the beginning of the game, <laughs> or were you yelling because you got really excited with the comeback later on in the game? I would say both. And, <laughs> uh, there, there's also a third yelling, because sometimes I just yell at the referee something. That, right. uh, <laughs> it happens, right? It happens. So yeah, it happens. It happens, but it's okay. <laughs> you've been the team is doing great. You've won the first two of your five matches over seventeen days. You've got the San Jose Earthquakes coming up on Saturday. What does the team have to do to keep this momentum rolling? Well, we we, we need to keep uh, playing like we're doing now, in the sense that uh, we need to be fearless. We need to be aggressive when um, the other team has the ball, even if we are not uh, at BC place, we are away, but uh, we showed in the last game that uh, we can do it uh, even away against good team. So we know now that the price is really close to us because the, uh, it's four games till the end and uh, every game must be treated like, uh, treated like, a, like a final. And uh, that's the way that we need to approach uh, game by game. Right, because you're in, you're just in that last playoff spot right now, but you have to fight to keep it, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to we need to defend everything. We are there with the nails and teeth and everything to defend <laughs> the playoff spot to the end. That is so <laughs> true. So you've got San Jose coming up. You've got Minnesota coming up. Yeah. So is it? What do you think about the schedule ahead then for keeping that spot? Well, uh, we have. Uh, I would say that, um, of course, every game is very important, San Jose, but, uh, but the two games at, uh, at BC Place that we have next Wednesday uh, with Minnesota and uh, the last one that will be against Seattle on November 7 are, are key because uh, 
The data shows that uh, BC Place has been our fortress. We we got most of the point there. So uh, the two home game will be for sure very important. So we'll uh, we'll need uh, the help of the fan because if it continues like this, also they have to yell something for me because my voice is going down so fast. <laughs> it sure sounds like it. So the team seems to do really well in coming from behind, Vanny. Like on the one hand, that's something to admire. But on the other, do you think, I wish we didn't get in that hole to begin with? Yes, yes, you, you're exactly right. And uh, I think it's the only thing at the moment that we need uh, really to improve. It's, I would say, the approach of the, of the first 15, 20 minutes. And uh, we, we actually improved a lot, especially in the home games. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's kind of a mental thing that uh, the awareness of the team that uh, we became uh, a very good team uh, uh, step by step during the league, we and now we need to be aware that we are a good team. That we don't need the the, the opposition to uh, slap us to just uh, wake up and start playing. But uh, we can, uh, I would say, try to control and dominate the game from uh, from minute one. So I hope that that will be has been the message yesterday. Also, training that will be also the message. Uh, my message uh, Saturday before the game because uh, the uh, comeback are beautiful, but they're really hard to do. And so uh, we cannot afford to, to, to give away the start of the game too many times. Well, rest your voice. I, you're going to need it tomorrow. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week. Good luck, Benny. Fantastic. Thank you, Cine. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Vanny Sartini. He's the acting head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. As you could tell, losing his voice, he said a lot of yelling in that last game. Well, it was a come-from-behind 3-2 win. So, of course, all week long, we've talked about it on the show, you've been hearing it in the news, the NDP government has been facing criticism over proposed changes to the freedom of information laws in this province. We've heard that phrase, a modest fee, more times than, well, any of us actually care to count. But is charging money, as much as $25, to even file a request a modest fee? Only one province charges that, Alberta. All the other provinces and territories either charge nothing or $5. So why do this? Why why change these laws when it's public information? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Lisa Bear, who's the BC Minister of Citizen Services. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Simi. And, and yes, I'll make sure I change some of my language there for you. <laughs> I think it's just it's frustrating for people, right? Because just to hear the same words over and over and over again gets people worked up. So why do this? Why are you charging a fee at all for freedom of information? Of course, and, and happy to answer the question. But I do want to take a quick second to me and, and tell your viewers what the rest of this legislation is, because it is a big piece, and it's important that British Columbians know this. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic did change the world. It, it has changed the way we're working and connecting with loved ones. It's connecting how we are accessing the services we need. I don't think your viewers know that prior to the pandemic, you you weren't actually allowed to talk to your doctor on FaceTime or, or do online classrooms via Zoom. None of that was permitted under the old legislation. Um, this legislation is increasing protections for your privacy. We're, we're bringing in things like mandatory breach reporting and, and increasing privacy assessments. Um, you know, the, these are important things for British Columbia to keep them safe. 
Oh, absolutely. And those are all good things. But then why include this part about charging people to file a freedom of information request? Absolutely. Well, I believe people need access to their information quickly. I firmly believe that. Uh, We do have a a system that is currently, um, you know, we have more requests per capita than the other three prairie provinces combined. And I don't think your reasonable believe, uh, your your viewers believe that's reasonable. That's a, that's a huge increase in the past four years. And so we are implementing uh, the ability for government to charge a fee, and that will be decided in regulation. Right, but this is public information. Like these are taxpayers. We've already paid for this. This is our money going to this. Why are you charging us money to get that information? Well, absolutely. You have the right to that information and you have the right to get it quickly. But when we have a system uh, that is clogged up with, with, you know, an increase of three times the amount of requests from political parties, for example, you know, it's an increase from 1,588 requests four years ago to now 4,000 770 requests. But Minister Beer, if you were in opposition and the NDP were very good at this, you would be screaming about this. This is part of the political process. It's part of the democracy we live in. It's part of the tools of being in opposition. Absolutely. And absolutely, we use this tool as well. You know, 1,588 requests in in, um, 2016-17 compared to 4,770 right now at the cost of $14 million. I think most British Columbians would think it's reasonable to apply a fee um, and moderate actually, and, and I, align ourselves with other jurisdictions. I don't think actually most British Columbians would think that $14 million is a high price to pay for access to taxpayer information. And other jurisdictions that charge a fee, only one charges $25. Others charge zero or $5. What is BC's fee going to be? So BC's fee is going to be uh, decided through regulation, and I've never said uh, twenty-five dollars. That that is, I have never said that number. I've said that the fee ranges from five to fifty dollars, and we'll be looking somewhere in the middle of that. Well, that's twenty, um, but that's course, twenty-five dollars. That is twenty-five dollars. That, that's not what I'm recommending. Um, and so, uh, yes, I want to make sure that that uh, people continue to have access to their information and access to it quickly. Your your viewers are going to be able to access their personal information at no charge. And that is vitally important for viewers to know. Right. But we don't necessarily want our personal information. What we, we, you know, we want to know about what else is going on with our money, with taxpayer money. What is the fee Mm -hmm. you are going to recommend then? Uh, I'm wrecking, as I've said, that has to be decided through regulation. And so I I can't give you a number right now, Simi. I have told you, um, you know, that other jurisdictions are between the 5 and 50, and I'll be recommending a number uh, throughout that range, um, in in the middle of that range. Uh, But, you know, it is important that people get access to their personal information at no charge. And it is important that people be able to access government information quickly. And I want to make sure that happens. But do you think this is going to make that information better? Will it be less redacted? Will there be more of it? Will it speed up the time that, you know, these requests are responded to? Absolutely. It's going to speed up the time. When you have a system that, uh, you know, a system that's clogged up with requests. You know, let me give you a great example, Simi. So yesterday, the Premier was talking about uh, how there's requests in for 
screenshots of all the devices, uh, you know, of, of ministers and senior government staff. And, and he held up his cell phone and said, um, you know, here, take a look at my cell phone. I can show you exactly what's on it. And, and media were able to zoom into his phone. Well, within an hour, we had a, we had a FOI request for his Scrabble score because he has a Scrabble app on his phone. Well, he brought now, it up. I, get, I mean, he showed I it, right? I, I mean, that's, you got to take the hilarious. bad, you got to take the bad with the good. I mean, the, obviously yeah. it's not easy, but that's the whole point of keeping information free and transparent. And I believe that people need access and transparency in government. And I believe that when a system is clogged up and with, with you know, $14 million in requests, a triple amount of requests, from political parties, uh, for example, um, that that people, your listeners, are not getting the fast quality access to the service that they need. So is it possible this could change? What are you hearing from people? Because there's no way people are saying they support this. That's certainly not what I'm hearing. Yeah, so I'm... I'm um, of course, this is decided through regulation and the... the uh, the ability to apply the fee is in the bill that's before the House right now. So we're going through the, the entire government process and at the will of the House. And, and you know, uh, we're in the middle of debate on that right now. Uh, the bill will be passed, either amended or as it is, uh, you know, currently. And we will continue to, to debate that bill vigorously uh, in the House, I imagine. And um, and then what is decided from the bill will go uh, through regulation. Right. And so all those pieces are, are being worked at. Uh, at but um, I, I believe it's important to ensure that people get access. What, one last question then. Why didn't this go through committee? I mean, there was a committee appointed to look into revamping FOI laws, and yet this legislation did not go through that committee. So that, that committee is, committees don't review draft legislation. Uh, what that committee does is review the current legislation. There have been two previous special committees already uh, who have reviewed this, this old legislation. Um, and if, if the committee had uh, reviewed it again, it would have been a third time of reviewing existing legislation. This committee now gets a chance to review new legislation and start making new recommendations. I think it's a great opportunity. But most importantly, um, we had a ministerial order that was allowing uh, things like the FaceTime with your doctor in class, uh, you know, online classrooms that expires at the end of the year. And so uh, this legislation needs to be tabled this fall All right, so thank we can address that. Thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Uh, thank you, Simi. It was nice to chat with you. The public health emergency in this province continues, and I'm not talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm talking about our opioid overdose crisis. It is a problem that we cannot seem to make a dent on as much as we try. Well, as that continues, though, we've got one BC MLA who is sharing his story of addiction. Joining us now is Adam Olson, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me on your show. Adam, why did you decide to talk about this now? I've been in the uh, elected uh, in the legislature now for the last four and a half years, and um, the the majority of the time that we've been in a public health emergency around the uh, opioid uh, and overdose or drug poisoning crisis, and um, I felt that it was important that uh, I be a part of the destigmatization of of substance use, abuse, and addiction. I have my own story, as I suspect many people do. 
And, um, you know, it's it's often seen as a kind of an existential threat for politicians to be talking openly about uh, about having uh, struggles throughout their life. And I just felt that um, we need to move past the stigma that uh, that has been built up around especially illicit drug use um, in an effort to save lives. Do you think it's one of those things where a lot of people have turned it into it's an other like, oh, it's someone else. It is somebody other than me or somebody I know. Yeah, and I and I think that unfortunately, uh, as as this uh, crisis continues to to persist, um, more and more people are knowing somebody who has perished due to a, a drug poisoning. And so, um, you know, I think I think that uh, for me, what was uh, most poignant in this is that since being able to recover from uh, the challenges that I had in my early twenties, uh, I've gone on to get elected and get married and have kids and have a family. And, you know, I just think of the things that I've been able to accomplish because I was lucky enough to survive uh, the trauma and the, the, the addiction and substance uh, use and abuse that I had uh, to go on and do some, some pretty cool things. And I, and I just, in the context of uh, the number of people who have perished, I think of all of the things and all of the opportunities that is being lost here as we, um, and as we politicians uh, set up programs that have obstacles and set up programs that that um, put impediments in place and and uh, so I, I think that uh, by putting a an, another face on it uh, one that is fairly familiar to a lot of people especially in Saanich North and the Islands maybe not in the lower mainland nice. but um, you know I think that it it is an Im- important that the elected leaders in our province uh, to take those leadership roles and and um, you know a lot of the people that are that are passing away to uh, drug poisonings, uh, you know, they're not the demographic that I think many people think they are. They, they look a lot like me. They're 30 to 59-year-old males, many of whom are passing away in their own home. You know, I think we've, we've, yeah. th- there are certainly a lot of people that are passing away uh, to illicit street drugs who are homeless or you know, living on the street. But, but most, of, most of the people who are passing away are people who are, who are dying in their own homes. And I think that that's um, part of the message that I, that I want to really emphasize here. Adam, let's talk about y- your addiction issues. What was it? What happened? Well, look, I think that, uh, you know, I was a troubled guy coming out of high school. Um, my family broke up, and, uh, and that was a challenge for me uh, at that age. Um, I had a very, very stable childhood and had some psychological trauma around around that, I think, as a lot of people do. And, you know, I think that I can relate to those that have physical trauma as well. And uh, and substance use turned into substance abuse, and then it turned into addiction. I think that's a very familiar story for people. And so, um, you know, I think it, it is really a matter of, uh, of one thing leading to another. And, and uh, this is one of the reasons why I want to speak so strongly against you know the criminalization of people who who get caught up in this because it's it's actually um, most often it's not a deliberate thing to that people you know, you know try to get addicted to a to a substance but they end up there yeah. and um, and what I what what really needs to be emphasized is that you know, I, I feel lucky the fact that I, I was able to get out the other side of it and uh, I just really don't think that luck is is a uh, is a good enough program. <laughs> no, it's not. Save lives. How did you do that, though? Did you get help? Did someone reach out to you? Was there a moment that you had where you said, "I can't do this anymore"? 
Yeah, there were a lot of moments. I, I remember specifically a, a couple of nights when I was uh, sitting kind of in the in the midst of, of that despair and thinking of what would happen if, uh, if my parents uh, found me one day um, overdosed. And that, that was a, that was a pretty uh, awakening experience for me. And, uh, and as that, as I encountered that thought more often, I became, I would say that I was very psychologically exhausted um, by the, the routine and the, and the, uh, the day in and day out aspects of it. And, and I'd got to a point that a lot of people get to and and needed uh, to 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 get out of it. Needed to find a, a, a route out. And at the same time, I met my wife, and um, she mentioned to me that she was not interested in being with anybody that was uh, into substance use or into drugs. And uh, I viewed that as a as a real opportunity and fell into love. And thankfully, love was a more powerful emotion and powerful. <laughs> Uh, than than the the situation that I was in and and I think that I, you know I I was probably ninety percent of the way there already and and she gave me a a really good opportunity to make a break for it and that's, um, that's amazing. I never look back that's amazing yeah. but you know what you said it yourself there you were ninety percent of the way there but and that's the thing right how do we get other people to be ninety one hundred percent of the way there to want help to get out. Well, I, you know what, I think the, the real tragedy in, in this right now, Simi, is that a lot of people are 90% of the way there. And when they say that they need help, it's not available to them. And this is, and this is I think, one of the things that I've consistently heard when I'm talking to advocates and when I'm talking to, uh, to, to people who, who do work in this field on a regular basis. They say many more people than we could imagine are looking for help and just can't find it. My constituents come to me and tell me that when they need the help, it's not there. And so um, I, you know, I was very fortunate and, and, and my route out of the, the situation that I was in is not going to be one that's available to everybody. I, under, I understand that. And that's not the, the point of me telling this. It's, it's just simply to say that when people want the help, we need to make sure uh, that it's there and uh, and you know the, so so that's you know mm-hmm. a- access to treatment and you know the government has invested a lot of money in treatment. Uh, however, one of the things that I've been very one of the policies that I've been very critical of, and that is that we need to make sure that the um, illicit drug supply that's that's circulating in our communities right now uh, isn't uh, so poisonous that it's killing people before they yeah. have to the access to the treatment and. You know, I, there's, a, there's many, many stories in which people say that they need help. They get turned away because there's not, access, there's not the treatment facilities that are, that are there. And then they don't, uh, they don't get that op- option because um, they're found passed away because they, they ran into right. a, a really dirty supply of, of drugs. So, you know, I think that, um, that the first step is for us to, to put in place a, a safe supply program that saves lives because that's yeah. the, the first job of the government. And then, uh, and then make sure that treatment or options are there for people when they need it. Adam, thank you so much for sharing your story with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for your interest, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it is ambitious, and it hasn't happened for a long time, but BC's Forest Minister introduced a bill this week to amend the Forest and Range Practices Act. So what does that mean for forest management in this province? Well, let's find out, shall we? Katrina Conroy joins us now, BC's Minister of Forestry. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Thank you. Good morning to me. Great to be here. How long has it been since changes like this have taken place in BC? 
It's, it's been uh, uh, two decades since uh, the original Forest and Range Practices Act was brought in. So um, we really need to make some changes. And, and it's it, the changes, like what we're doing because the act, you know, it really limited our ability to fight fight climate change and, and to protect old growth forests and, and also to share benefits with Indigenous nations and local communities. So it's high time that we made the changes. I know a lot of this has to do with like reforestation issues as well. So how will this impact people? So what, what it'll do is it'll bring in a, a forest landscape plan that'll be developed uh, in collaboration with government and Indigenous nations on the traditional territory who the um, who the you know the forest area is in. Um, they will work together to make sure that they're uh, prioritizing forest health, looking at uh, a smarter ecosystem-based management of forests, and and then. And then the licensees will have to make a uh, forest operations plan where they will show where they're going to harvest, what they're going to harvest, how they're going to harvest, and what kind of roads they're going to put in and how they're going to maintain those roads. And they will have to align that with the forest landscape plans. So it's all, and it'll have to be made sure that the information is available to the public, that people have the opportunity to see the plans prior to the harvesting beginning. And what, where do wildfires factor into this? Because I know that dealing with the aftermath of wildfires is also an issue here. Oh, very much so. Sorry, Simi. I mean, this year was, as you know, one of the, the worst that we've had in many, many years. And I mean, it's been an ongoing thing and climate change is part of that. So we have to make sure that we're dealing with that. But it also gives us the ability to look at prescribed burning or cultural burning as the, um, as the First Nations have, have talked about quite a bit. In fact, uh, this summer, the Premier and I toured around quite a bit and and I, you know, we did go and see the um, the devastation at the Okanagan Indian Band, and Chief Lewis showed us um, a, the, the land that his aunt owns, elderly aunt. She's 80 years old, and she does prescribed burning, cultural burning on her land. And uh, on either side of her property, it was burnt and it was black, and her land was still intact. And so it just showed the stark reality of, of why we need to do more prescribed burning and also more like cultural burning with Indigenous nations. What about the issue, of course, of old growth forests? This is something that the government has been taking a lot of heat on, I would say, recently. What does this act do for old growth? Well, the past policies, they've limited our ability to protect old growth. We will be able to look at the entire ecosystem of of a forest landscape instead of, because we're moving towards an ecosystem-based management and instead of just looking at the the harvesting of of a landscape. So it'll be you know, to look at the whole picture and, and will help us to um, move forward to have the tools in place, but also to, to make sure we're um, having those uh, uh, direct government-to-government conversations with Indigenous nations. And it's about uh, DRIPA as well, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, ensuring that we're supporting reconciliation and strengthening the role of First Nations in forest planning and decision-making. Okay, so then I guess the question that a lot of us would have is, does this impact, like, what's going on with the protests and the Ferry Creek situation? Yeah, so, you know, that's a, you know, a great question, and, and we are hoping that the, uh, the protesters will accept the fact that they are on the traditional territory of the Pachidot Nation and that the Pachidot have asked them to leave them in peace so that they can uh, undertake their forest landscape plans, which they've already started the work. I mean, they, they want to do that work. They want to make sure they're looking at the entire ecosystem, looking at, you know, what can be have, harvested, what should be protected. I mean, they're very much wanting to do this, and, and they, they want to do it in, in peace. So we're, we are hoping that these, uh, 
this will help people to move forward in recognizing that this is the right decision. And you mentioned before that, you know, current legislation would not allow you to protect old growth as much as this new legislation would. Why is that? Why couldn't we just automatically protect old growth? Well, there's a, a lot of uh, issues in place, and, and, and one, you know, the, like the 14 recommendations put forward by the uh, independent panel, we're, all, we're implementing them all, but the number one was making sure that uh, we are talking to the rights and title holders, the people, you know, the Indigenous nations who are, whose territory that the, the land is on, the forests are on, and, and making sure that they have a say in what happens on those, on those properties. Okay, so then moving forward, will it be easier to say, okay, this is old growth, this needs to be protected? Um, yes. And, and we know, like, we, some forests are, are irreplaceable and, and need protecting, and some are, you know, we, we are going to be harvested. I mean, we're, we're not, uh, we will continue to harvest. We will still to, you know, we will still, uh, you know, I want to make sure we have a resilient, healthy uh forestry uh, industry in this province, but also re- resilient, healthy forests in this province. So so what is this process going to be like now? So this has just been tabled this week. What happens next? So we're going to work to uh, uh, bring the regulations into force. Um, we'll also be talking to Indigenous nations, talking to our partners, uh, industry. We've already, there's been considerable actually collaboration consultation done with with people ever since we were first elected as government in 2017 my my former colleague Doug Donaldson brought in amendments in 2019 um, due to covid and and other issues um, some of those those uh, uh, that legislation wasn't brought into force so we will be bringing it all into force within the next year all right i guess we'll talk to you about it again thank you very much for your time thank you Simi. much appreciated